You know, living in America, we are all familiar with symbols of authority in our society. Uh, we all know uh, this one. So we all know that that one is. Uh, I've, I've met a few coming up beside my door to have a conversation a few times when I've been driving down the road. Uh, if you're in front of someone holding one of these and wearing one of these, either you or someone you know is in big trouble. Uh, we also know this one and the authority that it represents. And one of the things about the symbols of uh, society, in our society, the interesting thing is that the people that wear these or hold these or stand behind these are often not the people who are the greatest influencers in our lives, even though they are the people who may have the most authority in society. In fact, oftentimes the people who have the most authority in society have the least amount of influence in our lives. In fact, for, some, for many of us, there's even a sense in which some of us resist the influence of the people who have the most authority. And if you think about it, the people who have the greatest influence in our life, it isn't because of a badge or a gavel or because of what they stand behind or even because of some position they hold. It's an authority that comes from their life. Like maybe, and maybe they're not even alive anymore. But you'd say the influence of this person in your life is lasting because their lifestyle aligned with their convictions and what they said that they believed. And when they said things, there was a weight to their words because it was punctuated by their lifestyle. In some cases, we want to be like them, or we want to follow their example. We want to marry somebody like that. We hope our kids grow up to be just like them. And, and for most of us, we're just drawn to people like that who have a type of what we would call moral authority. And moral authority is that thing that we see that a person has, but we can't quite put our finger on it. It's something we want to have for ourselves. A person with moral authority always has followers, maybe not in a public way or a big way, but there are always people who would listen to and are influenced by people who have moral authority. And the man Nehemiah that we've been tracking with for the past several weeks, he was a man with incredible moral authority. In fact, last week we looked at a situation that honestly it seems unrealistic in how it played out. Now, Nehemiah, he was in Jerusalem. He was working with the people to rebuild the walls. They're nearing completion of this unbelievable feat. But because of the people's full commitment to doing this task, they hadn't planted their crops. So as a result, they, there wasn't any grain. And this group, there was this group of people they weren't committed to the task of rebuilding the wall. In fact, they weren't happy about it at all. They had a lot of money. They had a lot of influence. And it looked like it was going to somehow, this wall was going to somehow strip them of their power and their income. But then they saw a way to make some quick money from this because the people had not tended their crops. So they were running out of grain. These men had storehouses full of grain. So they began to sell grain to the people in Jerusalem, and they kept raising the price. And just as the people were about to run out of money, the tax ban comes along because Jerusalem was a province of Persia, and if you didn't pay your taxes, you're in trouble, but they didn't have any money because they spent it all on grain. But the nobles and the officials were like, hey, no problem, no, none at all. We got, we'll loan you money. And they began to loan this money at exorbitant interest rates. And before long, these people, they were out of money. They couldn't even pay the interest rates that they owed. That they owed. So these officials said, it's okay, we'll just... Uh, we'll just take your land, we'll take your houses, we'll, we'll take your sons and daughters as collateral, we can just make them slaves and so they can be working for this. Well, this went on and on and then Nehemiah finally finds out. He gathers all the nobles and officials together and he says to this group, look, this is going to stop and it's going to stop now. And the text tells us that they said, yes, sir, tucked their tails be between their legs, gave everything back to the people and you never hear from them again. But if we're honest, you hear a story like this, and it doesn't seem realistic. 
I mean, like some of you, you'd, you're in leadership in your workplace. You'd say, hey, I call all my employees together in and say, hey, this is what we're going to do. And they would just laugh or uh, I, would, I could call my family in and say, hey, from now on, this is the way it's going to be. The kids would get, okay, yeah, whatever dad, whatever mom. And it'd be back to business as usual. And you say, like, this just doesn't really happen in real life, in the real world. But what we didn't talk about last week was why they responded the way they did. Because it connected directly to something that, that we have got to pay attention to. So Nehemiah had been doing something for quite some time. And then what he did for the next 12 years that earned what we all need to have if we're a Christian, especially if we're a Christian, if we're a Jesus follower. He had incredible moral authority. And see, the people didn't respond to Nehemiah the way they did because he was the governor, because they'd had governors before. They had run them off before. Like these were the power brokers for the nation. They ran the city. So why was it that when Nehemiah stood up to them, they all gave in? It's because Nehemiah had something that the governors didn't have. So when he said, this is evil in the sight of God, clean up your act, the words carried weight. And the text tells us that they couldn't say anything because of Nehemiah, against Nehemiah because of his incredible moral authority. So if you have your Bibles or Bible app, you want to follow along, we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 14. And we're going to take a look at what Nehemiah had done to gain and keep his moral authority. And then I want to talk a little bit about our lives. So this is how he got it in verse 14. From the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed by, to be the governor of the, in the land of Judah, Judah until his 32nd year, so 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people. They took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to the food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people, but out of reverence for God. I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to work on this wall. And all my men were assembled there for the work instead of out collecting from the people or laying around. We did not acquire any land. Now, what does all that have to do with moral authority? Well, here's the situation. Nehemiah is the governor. And as a result, that afforded him rights and privileges that no one would ever question because they were ethical and they were legal. They were legitimate. Uh, The first was if you lived in Jerusalem and your wife bakes five loaves of bread, you need to send one to the governor. Uh, If you slaughtered three sheep or after you got everything prepared, you had to send one to the governor. If you went out and you picked 50 bushels, bushels of apples, you'd have to send four or five bushels to the governor. So the governor had the right to tax food for food. This is the way he ate. This is how, the way he fed his staff. And Nehemiah points out that when the king of Persia set him up as governor, he never took advantage of that right. So secondly, uh, the other thing was, as long as the king of Persia got his share, the governor had the right to tax the people for anything he wanted. He could tax them however he wanted. He uh, could take advantage of that. But he didn't. In fact, Nehemiah said he didn't tax the people at all. And then the third thing he had was the right to acquire land. So to be a landowner meant power and prosperity, and it set you up so that when you weren't governor anymore, you had something to live off of. And Nehemiah went so far as to never purchase any land for himself, and those people that were there to work with him, he didn't let those people close to him purchase any land either, even though they had every right to. Now why? Because Nehemiah didn't want to do anything that would cause the people to doubt the authenticity and the sincerity of his vision. He wanted them to know that he was 100% committed to his vision. He was not there to enrich himself, especially at their cost. Now imagine, 
from the moment, the moment the king made him governor, and then for 12 years, he passed up legitimate opportunities. He said no to income streams and land investments, and for years, he did nothing to give the people room to say, you know what, he's talking about God this, and build this wall, and God that, but we know why he's really here. I mean, look at the way he's racking up food and money and land and cattle and sheep. Nehemiah bent over backwards to do nothing self-serving, even though it was his right as governor. And by doing so, he gained incredible moral authority. So put yourself in the position of one of those nobles or one of those officials who have taken full advantage of the situation. You've enriched yourself. You've enslaved the people's children. You now own their houses and their land, and you've stolen their grain and sold them grain. They're paying interest rates so high that they'll never recover. And then Nehemiah calls you in. Nehemiah, who had every opportunity and every right to do exactly what you did, but said no. Nehemiah, who could have legally and ethically enriched himself at the expense of the people, but didn't do it. And now he calls you in, and he knows what you've done. And the text says that Nehemiah said, this is an evil thing that you've done. And the response was to leave the meeting, return everything to the people, and you never hear from them again. Because when Nehemiah spoke, he spoke not only from his position as governor, he spoke as a man with months and eventually years of proven commitment to the vision and years of investing himself and of sacrificing, showing that what he believed was in total alignment with what he did. And when he called them out, they had no response other than to do what he said. That's the power and the potential of a person with moral authority. Now, what does any of this have to do with you and with me? I'm going to go give you three statements, and I'm going to talk about how this absolutely relates to your life and to mine. And the first is just to make sure that we're clear. Moral authority, moral authority is the credibility you have earned by walking your talk. Result of people seeing alignment between what you say and what you do what you expect of others, and what you expect of yourself. It's the credibility that you earn by simply walking your talk, and we can all give examples of people that we've met who said one thing but did something else. I mean, maybe growing up, you heard it said, do as I say, not as I do. And when that happens, it creates a credibility problem. When you see a person like that, you think, I don't care what they say, they think I need to do. I mean, you're not moved by their words because Their actions are so much louder than their words, and they have no credibility. But when you're in the presence of a person where you know they've paid a price for what they believe, who they've even sacrificed, even things that they had every right to, it's a moving experience. And even if you don't end up believing what they believe, they have credibility because you know they truly believe what they believe, what they say they believe. And don't miss this, especially, again, if you're a Christian. Because that means that the reverse is true. What I mean is there are people in your life right now who do not believe what you know to be true about a good God who loves us and what he's offered us through Jesus Christ. But you have the chance to earn moral authority and to position yourself as an influencer in the lives of those around you. The second thing is moral authority determines the degree to which others will be open to your influence your position in the family or the classroom or in the workplace or in your business. It may give you authority over people, but your position does not necessarily establish you as a positive influencer over anyone. Having positional authority may allow you to get them to do something, but it's forced respect. It's forced obedience. Positional um, authority alone does not translate into influence or earned respect. And God has not called us to have positions. 
God has called us to have influence. And every one of us knows that we only allow ourselves to be influenced by people that we respect. As respect is earned by their character and their consistency, right? And we see someone, and when we see someone demand one thing of us, and yet uh, it's something else for themselves, we lose respect. When we see someone claim to be one thing and then act a different way, we lose respect, and then we close the door to that person's ability to influence us. You see, parents, this is why it's so critical. You can show up for church, you can make sure your kids are in kids' life, and you can say how you believe in God and Jesus and the Bible and church, but at the other 167-ish hours a week, they hear words come out of your mouth, see how you treat their other parent, how you treat them, how you live, how you speak, the way you do, and watch what you do and what you don't do for others. And if they say that it doesn't line up with what you say you believe and the standard to which maybe you hold them and hold others, but not yourself, the older they get, And the more that they see that, the more credibility and influence you will lose. And eventually you will have no moral authority because you will have lost credibility and any right to give any input in their life. And you don't want that. So let me take it a little deeper and make it a bit more personal. Most of us in this room and those online, we would would say we're a Christian. Meaning we believe that Jesus was who he said he was and that we believe that we should do what he taught us to do. We believe that placing full trust in Jesus, the one who predicted and pulled off his own death and resurrection, makes peace between us and God. And this same Jesus stated that people will know that you are my disciples, my followers, not by what we believe, but by what we do, by our selfless and even sacrificial love that results in actions from what we say that we believe. And many of us as followers of Jesus, we lose our moral authority when Because we claim to believe in a good and loving God and Savior and Jesus Christ, and that we supposedly embrace a higher standard of living for ourselves in every area of life. But when those around us compare our words against what we say and what we do, what they observe in our life, they conclude that it doesn't match up. And they can say, why would I want to follow your Christ? Why would I want to put my faith in your Jesus? Like, you're just as impatient, if not more, than the people I know who are agnostic. So why would, I, why would I want to give my life to your God? Or the way you speak about or speak to others. Like, you're worse than people I know that claim to have no faith at all. In fact, the people in my life that believe in no God are more generous, more loving, more kind, more gentle, more patient than you. So why, why in the world would I want to believe in or follow your Jesus? I mean, the hard truth is, I mean, let's be honest, every one of us in this room, we know people who aren't Christians who are more Christian than most Christians. So you see how important this is. Because moral authority ultimately translates into influence, and we're only going to influence people who have respect for us. And respect is earned when what we say we believe is in alignment with what we do. But when, and this is the third statement about moral authority, when a leader lacks moral authority, no one is inspired to follow. Whether you're a parent or a teacher or a boss or a leader within a company or a manager, when a leader lacks moral authority, no one is inspired to follow. People might follow because they have to or because they might lose their jobs or because you have the power to punish them or because you're bigger than they are. They might follow for all different kinds of fear reasons. But when you lose your moral authority, no one's inspired to follow. And the tragedy in our society, we've all seen it, is men and women who are willing to trade in moral authority and integrity 
for pleasure, money, or position, to, for a raise or some kind of greater power or prominence in some arena of life. But when we trade our moral authority for the sake of pleasure or a position or personal preference, we make a bad, bad trade. We lose the ability to influence those who know us. I mean, think of it. The most influential person in all of history had no title. He had no authority, humanly speaking, none. Jesus had no position. Nobody had to follow him. He had no leverage in anyone's life, and yet he is the greatest influencer of all history. Over a third of the world's population believes that Jesus was the Son of God, and he had had no position. Never, never trade your moral authority for the sake of pleasure, a position of power, a position that is fleeting, because you will only have authority as long as you have the position. And positions come and positions go and they change. Like, I'm the boss, or I'm your dad, or I'm your mom, you're under our roof. And I mean, even as a parent, in many ways, your position goes as soon as your children get out from under two things, your roof and your financial control. Your level of influence is pretty much set the moment they leave home. So what a tragedy to trade it in. And sadly, I've met many who are reluctant to cross the line of faith for Christ, or they've pulled away from the church because of people who identified themselves as Christians, who said one thing but didn't do the things that they said that their belief system said that they should do. Like they wore crosses, they may have had fish stickers on their cars and Bibles in their houses or on their desk, and they talk about going to church, but when they observed them, when these people got to know them and look at their lifestyles and see how it didn't reflect any of that. There's a loss of credibility. Maybe they even hoped there was actually some truth about God and Christ and faith and hope, but they lost that hope because credibility was lost. Now, the good news is when you become a follower of Jesus, you don't have to put your faith in other Christians. That's great news. You don't put your faith in a pastor or a church leader but in the God-man Jesus, who never had a position. In fact, he gave up his position, yet his moral authority remained intact. In fact, when Jesus spoke, people would say he speaks as one having authority. They were going, he has no positional authority, but wow, he speaks as the one who has all the authority. And they saw that his words and what he claimed were in complete alignment with his actions and what he did. And then after the resurrection, he says, okay, now all authority... All authority in heaven and on earth has now been given to me, and now you're going to represent me. But you know how the world will see it? Not by your power, but by your prevailing faith and your selfless love, by the fruits of the Spirit. I could have powered up, but while I was walking around in a robe and sandals, I never played that hand. And that's the one who we have been called upon to to trust in and reflect, the living Christ whose words and actions were all that we're always in alignment, and it changed the world forever. And if you're a Christian, it is so crucial that you see how important this is because God has called us to be influencers in this world. Evangelism, leading, to people to, leading people to Jesus, isn't about bending people's arms or believe or else. It's about pure influence. And to lose our moral authority, it takes away from us the tool that is most precious in us sharing with other people what Christ is all about. So the question is, how do, you, how do you get that? And from Nehemiah, we, we, we learn three things that will be true of anyone who wants to build and keep moral authority. The first thing is character. 
And what's character? Character simply means that you need to have the will to do what is right as God defines what is right, even when it's hard. That we come to a place where we say, God, I'm adopting your standard of right and wrong. When it makes sense, when it doesn't, when it's easy, when it's not, I'm adopting your standard of right and wrong, and I'm committing myself to that standard. That's what Nehemiah did. He, he knew to bring maximum glory to God, the one he claimed to follow, it would have been wrong for him to take advantage of the rights that his position afforded him. And we're told in or, that he did this in order to show reverence and honor for God. I did not take advantage of it. In other words, a greater, for a greater good, for a bigger vision, it was the best thing to do. And he demonstrated his character by choosing to do the right thing. And the call to character, just to be clear, isn't just so that you'll be a better person. It's to pave the way to influence. Because God has called us to be influencers and to sacrifice character for anything will cause us to lose our ability to influence. The second thing we see in his life is sacrifice. People who have moral authority, there's always a time in their life where they have to make a big sacrifice. And it becomes public and that these are men and women who genuinely believe what they say they believe, demonstrated by their willingness to give up things for what they say they believe. And in many cases for us, it's going to boil down to one of, two, one of three things. Again, pleasure, money, or power. There are going to be, there's going to be crossroads for all of us where for your moral authority to stay intact, you're going to have to sacrifice in one or all of those areas as Nehemiah did, and you're going to be tested. Selflessness and sacrifice exposes to the people around you what's inside of you. You know what else it does? It exposes to you what's inside of you. In fact, some of you this morning, you're, you're on the fence in some area of your life. You're facing a decision. Maybe it's with work or school. Maybe it's family-related. Maybe it's a financial decision. It's something, maybe it's private, and you're convinced that nobody will ever know, and you're about to make a decision. And maybe you're tempted. Now, all I have to do is trade in a little bit of my integrity, a little bit of my morality, by not doing what God, you sense God is calling you to do or to not do. Like nobody else will know. It would be such an easy thing. This, this is your test. What are you going to do? And from personal experience, I can promise you, when you trade in your integrity and your moral authority for personal preference or gain, it is a bad trade every time. It will come back to haunt you. It's just a matter of time. And at its root, it comes down to and it's connected to your core values and your core beliefs as a person. In one of our sister churches, there's a guy who several years ago, he was in a persuasive speech class at a secular university. And one of the ladies, she decided to do her persuasive speech on abortion. Light subject matter. What could go wrong? So the day came. And as uh, expected, as she spoke, Everyone was getting a little amped up and agitated because there were like one and a half people in the class that would stand with her on the very narrow position that she was taking. So she does this whole speech against abortion, and then during the Q&A time, they're just pelting her with these questions, and one girl finally looked at her and said, look, you mean to tell me you wouldn't even allow rape as an exception? I mean, come on. And the girl responded, no, I, 
I don't think it's an exception. And the other girl just got amped up more, rolled her eyes. She said, you know what, that's so easy for you to sit up there and say that. And then she goes, what? And she goes into, what about all these other women? And then the girl interrupted her and said, you know, I used to believe exactly the same as you. But then I, and she gave the date, was raped. She then reached down into her purse, pulled out her phone, and held out a picture of her little girl. And the class got very quiet. See, the class wasn't necessarily convinced that she was right. But suddenly, she had moral authority on a subject that few people had because of her character and because of her own personal sacrifice and that it punctuated her words and there was no rebuttal because her, everyone knew, I may not believe what she believes, but she certainly believes what she believes. Her words and her life are in absolute alignment. That was Nehemiah. And that is what God has called us to. That was the example left by our Savior. And there's one last thing, time. You don't, you don't gain moral authority overnight. It's a thing that has to be earned a little each day after day after day. But in time, God establishes and positions and he prepares you. And the thing that you don't know is, you, what you don't know is what's going to happen three months from now or six months from now or even years from now. We don't know the moment when our being consistent for all those years will suddenly come into play. Nine years ago, I was with my oldest son. He was in his 20s at the time. I had flown up to meet, flown to meet with him and his ship in Pearl Harbor. They were coming back from the Persian Gulf. Uh, I boarded the ship in Pearl, Pearl Harbor and then was on the ship for seven days from Hawaii back to San Diego. Uh, waiting for him in San Diego was the woman that he would ultimately marry. And you need to understand, when my oldest uh, graduated and left for the Navy, I'm pretty sure he was convinced I was an idiot. And he might be right, but he definitely was. So but he did a lot of growing up in the Navy, and so one day, uh, we were actually in the laundry room on the ship. He's doing his laundry. He's folding this stuff. We were talking about who knows what, and then out of the blue, he looks me in the eye, and, and he, he says, Dad, when I, get ma- when I get married, I want my marriage to be just like yours and mom's. And I was stunned, and I was moved in that moment. And then the years that have followed to have him call me or call his mom for some advice, or to have his girlfriend turn fiancé, turn wife, turn coming up mother of my future grandchild. Uh, my son actually has created a Google Doc named, that he's named Dad's Words of Wisdom, in which he's just asked me to just drop thoughts and advice on life and marriage and raising a child. And I'm telling you, there was a time in our lives where if you would have said that was what my son was going to be like, nope, he is convinced I'm an idiot, it's never going to happen. And throughout our, throughout our marriage, there were plenty of opportunities to drop my guard or to give in to whatever conflict that was present that threatened to tear our marriage apart or to give in to a temptation that would have imploded our marriage. I could have easily prioritized my career and vocation over my wife and family. I mean, I could have justified it. My whole role is about helping people. And then you throw in the eternity aspect of things, and I could have just come home late every night, but I had a guiding, God-given vision for the kind of marriage and family that I wanted, the kind of husband that I wanted to be, the level of moral authority I wanted to have in my marriage and in my family. 
personally. So there were many times I sacrificed personal preferences or opportunities because for me, my marriage and my family was my top priority. And honestly, it seemed like our four kids were just oblivious to our relationship unless Shauna and I started getting verbally or physically affectionate in front of them. And they'd be like, Mom, Dad, gross, there are children in the room. But now on this side of things, to have conversations with them, the kind of conversations that I've had with my sons who are men now, and it's clear they were paying attention. And by God's grace, we've earned a level of moral authority in their lives. You don't know when the test will come. You don't know when that pivotal life-defining moment will be with your family member or with a friend or a fellow student or a coworker or a neighbor. You don't know what God is setting you up for or who's watching. But I'll guarantee this, someone is watching. You know how I know? Because you watch other people's lives too. And you're sizing them up. As we wrap up, some of you, you may look at certain areas of your life and say, you know what, this stage, it's too late for me. I have so lost my moral authority. I've made some foolish decisions in my life. I've said things. I've done things. I don't know that there's any hope for me in certain relationships. Listen, this is the great news about Christianity. First off, I don't care what you've done. When it comes to God, you are not outside the bounds of grace, God's grace. And there is a way back to God. And there is a way to rebuild moral authority. It is a difficult road and a difficult pill to swallow because the pill that you have to swallow is humility. Humility is the way back. Humility is the way you rebuild and restore moral authority. Humility expresses itself in two ways, confession and restitution. Confession being, here's what I did. They were my decisions. I own them. I'm responsible. I'm guilty. And confession not just to God, because that's easy, number one. And confession to God, it may make you and God okay, but it won't restore your moral authority with others. It's that uncomfortable face-to-face conversation and confession with those who were involved, people who know you. And to say, this is what I did, I'm not blaming, I'm not making excuses, this is what I did, I'm ashamed, I'm responsible, that kind of confession begins to reestablish moral authority. And the second thing is restitution. And you know what that is? It's saying if it, if it takes me the rest of my life, I'm going to do my best to repay what I've taken from you. I know I can't pay you back for the time. And I can't pay you back in a way that erases the emotional trauma that I caused. But if there is any way that I can make restitution for what I've done, I'm committed to do that, even if it takes me the rest of my life. And over time, I hope to restore your faith and trust in me. But even if that never happens, I am committed to do what is right towards you from this point forward. And when you meet a man or a woman who's that broken and that humble. It's powerful. Our families are watching. Our nieces and nephews, our children and grandchildren, they're watching. Your fellow students, your coworkers, your neighbors, the people in the gym, the person that serves you your coffee, your unchurched friends and family are watching. And like Nehemiah, we have the opportunity to put power behind our words with our lifestyle and our moral authority. And my prayer is this, that we 
that unchurched people, people who have yet to come and know and trust Jesus Christ, will be drawn to new life and ultimately to Jesus because they interact with you in all the different arenas throughout the week that you live and function and relate and operate in. And in that way that we would gain and maintain and build our level of influence in this city, in this community, and in this world for Jesus Christ. And that we would see God use us as spiritual and social change makers in the lives of the people that he has put in your life and around you. That he has positioned you to influence better than anyone else around you can. Let me pray for us. Father, this is... This feels like a really heavy burden there. And yet, Father, we follow the one who is willing to lay it all down for us. And we're so grateful. And I pray for every one of us, Father, because I'm confident that every one of us is able to look in the mirror and we, we recognize something in us we know what it is. And we recognize that it is, is something that could hinder our influence. So, Father, I pray for courage. I pray for strength. I pray is that you not help us see other people through your eyes, but you help us to see ourselves through your eyes. And that you'll give us clarity as to what to do, and that you will help us do it. Jesus said, the Holy Spirit would be our helper, and we need that. So, Father, I pray for everyone listening to my voice, and I pray for myself. I pray for those things that we reflect on, and we're just amazed that at this point, we've been a Christian so long, why do I still deal with this? And, God, that you would help us to deal with those things once and for all, by your Spirit, by your strength. And, God, I pray that you would use everyone in this room, those listening online, in a dramatic and unmistakable way in all the different environments where they function. And that you would just continue to grow and build our moral authority individually and collectively as a church. I pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.